So last week uh, was a longer passage, right? Some of you are nodding and saying, absolutely. It, it, it indeed was a longer passage. I didn't, didn't beat anybody to tamales, actually. Um, well, today is a much shorter passage, but Paul is continuing in this same, or some of these same lines of thought that we picked up on last week. Do you remember the subject of last week's sermon? It was, there's a choice before us, and that choice is two things. That choice is, is rubbish and righteousness. And rubbishness falls out there in that realm of things that we'd rather not think about. But the interesting thing was that Paul said all the things that he'd done in his past, there had to come a point in time where he recognized all of those things as rubbish, as trash, as filth, as unspeakable filth, to pursue the complete, utter righteousness of Christ. And so today we find ourselves in verses 12 through 16, continuing on that same idea of what it is to gain righteousness, of what it is to pursue Christ. You see, because today the question stands before us is, how urgently are you pursuing Christ? What energy are you expending to pursue Christ? For those of us who are already called into salvation, what energy are you expending to pursue Christ and make Him more a part of your life. And Paul gives us some insight into that today. Let me read for us, starting in verse 12 through verse 16. Paul writes and he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true what we have attained. Man, there are a lot of unanswered questions just as you, as you glance over this text. And I don't know if you have some of the same problems I do, but if you're just reading your Bible, you say you're trying to read through the Bible in a year or six months, or you're really brave and you want to do it in three months, and you sit there and you're just, I mean, you're, you're feasting on the Word, but in some ways you're shoveling it into your mouth, just hoping to, to keep everything in that you're taking, and we tend to skip over things. We tend to glance over things, and so when we come across words like this and it, we're not reflecting back. And so we just said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And man, we just keep trucking at 100 miles an hour. And the question never gets asked in our mind, what's Paul talking about? Or is that a New Testament professor at Southwestern that would always ask the question, he was from Australia, and I thought this was a great way of putting it, he would say, what's Paul on about? I don't know why that just really stuck with me. And so what is Paul on about? What is the this and the it that he's talking about? See, I started meeting with a group of people on Wednesday nights, and we do more of an, an in-depth analysis of the upcoming sermon so those people could give you the answer to this, but I've asked them to sign a statement saying that they will not utter a word until the end of the sermon. Uh, they get no extra credit, and they get no money back as a result of already knowing the answers, but it is good for them as they've invested themselves in the truth of trying to excavate a deeper understanding going phrase by phrase. So Paul writes, and he says, not that I've already obtained this, but I press on to make it my own. So what is he talking about? 
You see, if we look back in verse 10, we start to get an idea of what Paul's going to flesh out in these five verses before us. Starting in verse 10, he says, That I may know him. Circle that. Paul writes, he says, That I may know him. And then he gives some modifiers for what exactly it is to know him. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him and his sufferings. That I may know him and become like him in his death. And then he ends, he says, That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Man, I submit to you today that what Paul is writing about, what he says that he's already not perfect in doing, what he says is he hasn't fully attained, is this perfect knowledge of Christ. You see, the righteousness of Christ had already become his own. His fellowship with Christ, he was seeking to take in more of his sufferings. He was seeking to know him more. And as Paul writes this, he is combating those who said, through adherence to the law and, and importing all those things from Judaism, we can become perfect before God. And he takes some of their language and he takes some of their argument and he begins to use it against them. You'll remember in verses 4 through 6 that Paul set out this whole thing. He says, man, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. And he starts listing all these things that give him, in their minds, a very perfect status of these Judaizers, of these people that are opposed to the Philippians, a perfect status. And so it's appropriate that Paul here turns and he tells them, he says, guys, I am not already perfect. I haven't already obtained this. You see, but there's some complication in even using this word perfect. What is Paul getting on to? Is he, is he trying to tell us that, that, that perfection is actually attainable. You see this, the, the root word telos could give us a variety of things. It could give us maturity, it could give us completeness, and it can in some sense mean perfect. But Paul's not standing and advocating that they can be perfect in this world. You see, there are those that advocate that you can be perfect in this life. Man, we can be righteous in this life because we have the righteousness of Christ dwelling inside of us, but we cannot be perfect. Now, this creates a stream of two things of thought. One says, I can never be perfect, so I'm going to pursue hedonism. I'm going to pursue all the things of the flesh that I've ever wanted to do. And then there's the side that says, maybe it's just Paul that can't be perfect. Maybe I can actually be perfect. But Paul teases out for us what it is that we should be pursuing. You see, Paul's definition of perfection is tied to the resurrection, and it is a word against the Judaizers. It's a word against those who are seeking to impart things into salvation. He says, I press on to make it my own. So I'm not there yet. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. For what reason? Because Christ has made me his own. You see, Paul, in saying, I've pressed on, gives us the idea of rapidly moving and taking decisive action towards a goal. Moving rapidly and decisively towards a goal. But there's a logic of his flow. See, Paul doesn't just say, man, I am moving on, I am doing everything that I can do in and of myself to make this my own. But, but look, at the, look at the clause there. He says, because what reason? How can he do this? Because Christ has made me 
his own. You see, the reality for us as we sit here in this room today is that we can pursue Christ on our own? Never. We can only do it in so much as we have been made his own. Do you catch the weight of that and do you also catch the relief of that? Man, the weight of that is that, that if God hadn't worked inside of us unto calling us into salvation, we're lost, we're wandering around without hope or direction. But in having been made his own, the onus is on us to press on, to move forward with both intensity and direction, to continue to take on more of Christ in our lives, to continue to make our lives to be more of a reflection of what Christ is. Man, so since Christ has made us his own, in what ways are you seeking to make him your own? In what ways are you seeking to make him more alive in your life, to seek him and to make him more part of every decision, of every attitude, of absolutely everything. You see, there's nothing that is off limits, and we can put nothing off limits. We can put nothing in the safe area in this pursuit, in this pressing on to make Christ our own. You see, Paul begins to hone in on an area of application in verses 13 and 14. In verses 13 and 14, he begins to kind of draw this again. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So he's reiterating what he's just said. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, when he writes them first, he says, Brothers, See, Paul could have chose many titles for them. He could have chose to call them uh, people that I'm writing. He could have said Philippians. But he uses this word brothers, and he's coming back to it again with this title to show them one of familiarity and familial relationship. You know the difference between when somebody addresses you as, as sir when they call you by your first name or when they call you brother or when they, they call you he or him? I mean, there's a real difference there, right? There's a real difference in the way that we are addressed. Bryce, my son, responds a lot differently when I say, son, come over here, or Bryce, come over here, than when I say, Bryce Allen Beasley, come over here, right? Paul writes to them, and he says, brothers. He's finding this point of commonality with them. He's not claiming perfection. Paul shows them in every way. He is very much still a part of this pursuit. He aligns with them, not from ahead saying, Uh, you know, follow my example, which is what he will do in verse 17, but at this point, what he tells them is this, us together, brothers, we pursue him together. We seek to make him our own. But then he enters into this interesting discussion, and this is where it's going to become a sticking point for some of us. So he tells them, he says, look, perfection's not there for me yet. My life isn't fully identified with Christ yet. But let me offer you one thing I do. I forget what's behind, and I strain for what's ahead. I press on. And he's using these two participles here, and he's saying, as I press on, I'm forgetting, and as I press on, I'm straining forward, trying to attain what's ahead. Now, he says, forgetting. There was some discussion on Wednesday night as to all things that could be forgotten by Paul. 
And most readily, people point to the fact that, well, he's, he's going in, and for Paul, you see there's this great burden. There's this great, overwhelming sense of grief in his zealous pursuit of God and his persecution of the church spelled out in verses 4 through 6. And so clearly, that's what Paul is forgetting. I mean, this makes sense, right? These are things that Paul is likely not really excited to have done. And we can all identify with that. We all have things in our life that, man, we would be happy to forget. That when we come to this verse, we say, absolutely, I want to forget all the junk, all the trash in my past. You see, but there's one thing we're forgetting. Paul, as he writes this, is likely 20 years after his conversion. So he's had 20 years of doing things right. He's had 20 years of growing closer to Christ. He's had 20 years in this time. He has planted even this church in Philippi. He has visited, visited them on numerous occasions and developed relationships with all these other churches. Now, Paul says, forgetting what is behind. He doesn't just say forgetting the bad stuff. You see, Paul chooses not to avail himself of all the victories that he's had in the past. Equally, he chooses not to continue to grind himself into the ground of all the mistakes that he's made in the past. You see, as we sit in this room today, there are those of us that, man, there are so many pains, there are so many hurts in our lives that when we come to this passage, we want to lay those down. You see, there are those who point back that were involved in the planning of this church, and they look back and said, man, we wish it could have happened a different way, and they continue to beat themselves up over the planning of this church. There are those that have been involved in this church that look back at their relationship with other pastors and other divisions and other things that have gone wrong, and they say, I wish I could let go of these things. But they continue to hold on to them. They continue to let them fester. They continue to let them eat away at themselves and the unity that they could have in this church. You see, this is where it becomes difficult. When it's some generality and it's way out there and it's forget the things in the past and we internalize it and we, make it pers- and we don't make it personal, it's easy, right? Just forget it and move on. When we start making these things personal, when we start actually forgetting the things that have hurt us, when we actually start forgetting the things that we have done to hurt others, when we actually start forgetting the things and not concentrating on all the things that have gone wrong in our past, and we start naming them one by one, and choosing not to avail ourselves of these things anymore, not to be held down by these things anymore, not to let these things reign supreme in our lives anymore, that's when it starts getting tough. And you see, there's this other side. The people that say, well, man, I'll let those things go. Are you kidding me? I'll let those things go 20 years ago. People are still worried about that? Man, I remember the glory days. I remember when this thing was packed out. I remember doing all these things. I remember going on crusades. I remember people coming to faith. I remember hearing great words preached from the pulpit. Man, those were the days. And they won't let go of that. They keep living in that past life. They keep living in that past reality and trying to impose that past reality on today. You know, it would be like me trying to remember and recollect what it's like to be 18 and not afraid of anything, with all the strength in the world, and all the energy in the world. And I keep dwelling on that, and I keep trying to make that my present reality. But every time I go in to lift weights with Joe Kilgore, I remember that he's in his 20s and I'm in my 30s. 
that this is a guy that tried out to be a professional baseball player, and this is a guy that was a missionary, right? That, that, wasn't, that wasn't funny. You see, we've got to let go of the things that hurt us in the past, and we've got to let go of our conception of what perfect was. We've got to let go of our conception of what it was when things were so good. And all our energy and all our thoughts are spent trying to bend us back into that again. We've kept that mold, we put it up on a shelf, and we keep pulling it down and trying to get this church to fit back into it again. We've, keep, we've kept our conceptions of all the things we've done right, and we keep bringing it down and trying to get ourselves to fit back in there. Can I tell you today that when Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, he forgot all the junk that happened to him in the past, but he also forgot all the things he'd ever done right. The 20 years of awesome ministry. Chose not to avail himself of it. Because he was so busy pressing on, straining forward for what lies ahead. Paul here paints the picture of somebody as they head towards the promise line. They've got their, their, their eyes set. They've got their body tensed and focused as they draw towards the finish line. And everything in them is focused on that moment. You see, because if they turn around and they look to see who's beside them, if they turn around and look to see what's behind them, they're going to lose this race. But he's running in such a way as to win. He's running in such a way as to strain forward because he is pressing on. So he's forgetting the successes and he's forgetting the failures. And he says he presses on for what purpose? Towards what destination? He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, towards, you see that, pri- that Paul's pressing on ha- finds both its source and its direction in the heavenlies. It finds both its source and its direction being heavenward. Not that he's looking around trying to figure out things, but that God called him at the beginning of this race and said, man, place your hopes Place your desires, place your focus heavenly, towards the heavens. You see, there's also this idea that this prize is not reached in this life. This prize is not reached in this life. There's some some peace in that, right? But there's also this idea of, man, I'm more of a sprinter, not a long-distance guy. And I'm really not very good at either of those. And so there's some of us that try and live this Christian life like a sprint. We go out and we do really well. Share the gospel with five people. We go to camp and we feel great about it. We do a lot of really good things for people in short spurts. I'm like, man, that made me feel so good. (sighs) I can't wait for the same time next year when I can do this again. And so we kind of punctuate our lives with periods of service. You see, but this idea of pressing on, of straining ahead, It doesn't find itself worked into pressing on for 30 minutes or pressing on for 45 minutes or pressing on for a week at a time, one week a year. But it's this idea of continually moving towards, continually pressing towards. You see, but in a world filled with fifth place trophies, we become satisfied with merely being a part of the team. We become satisfied with merely being you know, one of the group. You know, long gone are the days when you gave 
trophies for first, second, and third place. Now, if, if your team was out there and they stood on the field or they stood on the court, they're going to get some type of recognition for that. Now, for kids, that's great, right? We want to encourage them, not crush their hopes. Your three-year-old team is awful. The basket hoop is that way, right? You know, you get the, uh, the sportsman award or whatever. Well, what did I do? Well, you, you showed up. That's being a good sport, showing up. So we get fifth, sixth, and seventh plate trophies. But the, the, this is where this goes bad. It's when this begins to make it into our mindset today. We start to make it into the church. And we think, you know, save from the beginning. And I can really do whatever I want. Though. And so there's this draw back to hedonism. There's this continual draw back to hedonism of pursuing the things that I want to do. But Paul stands there and he's like, guys, I'm not perfect yet. I, Paul, am continuing to work this thing. I, Paul, am continuing to forget what's behind and strain forward to what's ahead. We should all run in such a way, not to be satisfied with fifth place trophies and ribbons of participation, but in such a way as to win the prize. In such a way as to being towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul in verse 15 now moves to offer a word about the collective mindset. Paul writes this, and he says, Let those who are mature think this way. And then if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. You see, this is, this is kind of a unique verse. This is, this is kind of strange in some ways. You see, there are those who read this verse, and then Paul says, Hey, man, this is my way. If you want to do something else, you just, just go on with it. Or, hey, this is, this is my way of understanding this, but if you think differently, okay. But when you actually look at this, Paul isn't painting a, 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 you know, a reality that there are many truths. Paul isn't painting a reality where there are many different shades of gray. Instead, he uses this same root word. He uses the same idea of perfection. The same idea of perfection. And he writes and he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. He's writing to this group of Christians who all have the same mindset, who all have the same ideas, but the question remains, what are they meant to think? You see, they're meant to think and have a lifestyle that is equal to and full of this 12 through 14 idea. This idea of not being perfect but pressing on towards it. This idea of not considering ourselves perfect but forgetting what's behind and pressing for what's forward. This idea of life that consistently moves towards knowing Christ more. Knowing Christ more in every area and every aspect of our lives. You see, Paul isn't doubting his ability to speak truth into the situation. Paul isn't doubting his ability for even for these Philippians to accept the things that he says. But Paul is painting a theological truth here. God reveals sin. God unearths sin in our lives. You see, Paul writes them, and he says, this is the way that we should think. And if any of you have a different mindset, my words aren't going to convince you of that. But I give you this truth, that the Holy Spirit working in your life will convict you 
of sin. The Holy Spirit working in your life will convict you of sin. Man, this is both a freeing and an agonizing thing. That as I stand here and I speak to you the words from Scripture, it's not on me. It's not on me to convince you that the way you're living is wrong. It's not on me to convince you that you need to change your mind or your mindset. And that's the freeing aspect. The frustrating aspect for me and for Paul is you, as you write to a group of people, as you speak to a group of people, and for any of you who work with those who refuse to, to change their mind, is that you continue to expend your energy, you continue to expend what you know to be truth, and you see them time after time after time again choose something else. You see, but this doesn't abdicate Paul of this responsibility to continue to work in their lives. This doesn't abdicate me of my responsibility to continue to try and feed you guys truth. And this doesn't abdicate you of your responsibility to reach out to those men you have tried to share the gospel with time and time again. You have tried to minister to time and time again, but their heart is heart. They refuse to hear. God is the one that does the conversion. God is the one who through the Holy Spirit does the work. But we are the ones who are his mouthpiece. Do you understand how that works? Do you see your part in that puzzle? So Paul writes to them, and he says, even though you might not think this way, God will convict you of the truth. He will reveal that to you also. And in verse 16, he says, let us, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let us hold true to what we have attained. You see, Paul here in verse 16 uses a first plural. He says, let us, let us as a group, we've all attained something. This is not a me, this is not a you, but a we. And we see this rendered out in a variety of ways. In the King James translation, it says, let us walk by the same rule. The NIV says, let us live up to. And the New American, trying to paint the continuous aspect of this, says, let us keep living. You see this word here, gives us the idea of doing life together, of walking together. You see, this necessarily means that we need to spend time together. We need to walk together. We need to do life together. But he also says, because we have attained the goal. We've attained what's before us. We have attained the gospel. We've attained gospel unity. In some way, Paul. In some ways, Paul is reckoning back to two, verse two, chapter two, verse two, where he says, "Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind." You see, Paul's desire is that they would find unity in the gospel, that they would rejoice in God and be unified together as they proclaim Christ in their lives and continue to make Him known. You see, but the logic of the way this passage works is because Christ has made us his own, we press on to know him more. That we don't ever consider ourselves having arrived, but we're continually pressing on, forgetting what's behind, and straining forward to what's before us. You see, the word in Christianity is that there is no retirement. There is no time where we reach and say, man, I have invested 70 plus years to Christian ministry, and now I finally get to sit back. Attend a class or two, go on a field trip or two, and really just kind of coast. But it's this aspect of, this idea of continual involvement, continual work in the kingdom. 
that we forget those things in our past that have marred us, but we also forget those things in our past, those anchors and those milestones we have set before us, and we look here in the present back at those and revel in their light, but we continue to press on. See, yesterday at 142, when Steve Sandin went home to be with the Lord, uh, I was reminded of a track that Steve had written. And Steve wrote on the back of this track, speaking of Jesus, and he said, Jesus is the good shepherd. So trust and believe what he tells you, and he will lovingly lead you to a peaceful place. Jesus is alive and well, and he already knows you. Jesus wants you to know him. He wants you to hear he wants to hear from you and be involved in your life right now. Take time to listen and hear him. The words of Jesus are spirit and life. Are you seeking to know him more? Are you seeking to grow in him? Are you seeking to make him known? Are you simply looking back in the past and you're mired in the defeats and you're reveling in the victories? Let me pray for us.